Welcome to the Upper Room Sermon of the Week. For more information, go to urfellowship.com. You have 20 days of shopping till Christmas. Just a friendly reminder. It's not part of my sermon, just so you know. Um, we're in a series that we're doing this for this Advent season called The Carols of Christmas, where we are taking some of the famous songs that we sing around the Christmas time, and we're looking at the beautiful messages that they have in them, that they contain. Uh, so today I want to look at the Christmas carol, Joy to the World, and then at the end of the message we are going to take communion together. So... Um, a little context, Joy to the World was written in 1719 by the prolific songwriter Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts wrote over 750 songs in his lifetime. Um, Joy to the World, one of his most famous, and if you uh, take a look at the lyrics of the song, Joy to the World, you will see nothing about shepherds, uh, a manger, wise men, angels, or any other sorts of the, you know, the characters or elements that we normally associate with a Christmas story. The reason being is that Isaac Watts did not write Joy to the World to be a Christmas song. Uh, The original theme of the song was the second coming of the Lord. But the message remains true. There's a joy that Jesus brings. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to go, we're going to look at that and let Jesus talk to us about that. Uh, We're going to go to John 16, 16. We're going to fast forward about... 33 years from the Christmas story to the night before Jesus dies. And Jesus and the disciples are together at this point, and uh, he's trying to explain to his disciples that they're going to experience great pain. But he says, don't despair, don't get discouraged, don't give up, because eventually they would know greater joy. It's this really kind of poignant scene, but the way John paints it, their confusion is, is funny. It's very comical. They, they have such a hard time getting what Jesus is even saying. So here we go, John 16, 16. We'll let Jesus himself tell us about joy. All right, John 16, 16, if you have your Bibles. It says, Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this time, or at this, some of the disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. So they're not quite picking up what Jesus is putting down. So Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? He says, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. So Jesus starts with this interesting metaphor. He says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain, but when her baby is born, she forgets the pain because of her joy. Um, when our first baby was born, uh, Katie and I went through this birthing class. Anybody done a birthing class? Yeah, I think they used to call them Lamas. Now they're birthing classes. Uh, it's been a while now, but, but, so I don't know if they still do this thing. But uh, the thing was, if, if you're going through the birthing class, they would never use the word pain 
because pain was kind of a downer, right? It's, it's kind of a negative word. So they would say the mom-to-be might experience some discomfort when going through childbirth. <laughs> and the husbands were there. Uh, we were the coaches. You know, mostly coaching consisted of telling Katie to breathe, just something called deep cleansing breaths. It's, it was not clear to me how telling Katie to breathe, which she'd been doing pretty much her whole life, would prevent discomfort during labor. But the day came, Katie was in labor for a long time. Uh, I was a coach. I did my thing. You know, I, w- I went and got the ice chips. I adjusted the pillows. I encouraged her to breathe. Uh, I massaged her back uh, for a long time. I mean, I was bent over for hours. My back was aching. <laughs> my hands were sore. I never complained. Um, not one time. So people will never know what I went through in order to give birth to that baby. But the, the worst moment came near the end of the labor. They had to turn Kitty's epidural off. Things were getting pretty crazy. I was the coach. I knew I had to do something. So, um, so I leaned over to Katie, and I just whispered in her ear, Katie, are you experiencing some discomfort? And uh, that was not the, my high point as a coach, but... Um, what is Jesus' point that a woman can no longer remember the pain? What is all this in a little while you're going to see me, a little while you're going to, you know, this stuff. He, what's he talking about? He says, I'm going to die and you're going to weep. But when you see me, when you meet me, the resurrected Lord, you'll rejoice. So here's what he's not saying. He isn't saying, you will, when you see me at the second coming, you'll rejoice. He's not saying, um, you will see me when you die and go to heaven and rejoice. He says, in a little while, when you see the resurrected, me resurrected, you'll rejoice. Now, why is, why is this important? Well, let me, let me ask you this. Why is it that Jesus' tomb was lost? Okay? We really don't know exactly where Jesus' tomb was. Okay? So actually, by 120 AD, Christians weren't even sure where it was anymore. Why is it that when the tomb of every prophet... Every religious founder uh, has been made into a shrine, a place of pilgrimage. How could Christians have lost the tomb of Jesus? The reason is, the tomb didn't matter to them because they had him. Right? He wasn't away. Real Real Christianity is to meet the risen Lord. Christians don't need to go to a tomb because they have him. They didn't need the tomb. They don't need a relic. They don't need some venerated location. They have him. You have a relationship. So why is that so important? Because what Jesus is saying here is Christianity does not only promise this incredible joy in the sky by and by, he says when you meet the risen Lord, you will rejoice here on earth. You will have joy. In fact, the illustration of the woman, he says, uh, joy is like a woman in labor. When her time has come, she has a child. I've witnessed a couple of births, and I don't know much about labor and delivery, but I know one thing very well about having a kid. That kid's coming out, right? When it's coming, it's coming. There's no stopping it. So when Jesus Christ gives this illustration of a woman in labor as this illustration of joy, what he's saying is, if you meet me, you will have joy. You will. It's inevitable. It has to be there. I've been, I've been very convicted this last week about what the Bible says about joy. I guess, truthfully, I had uh, this idea that joy was kind of optional, you know? 
Some of us have harder lives than others. You know, if you can work it up, you can have some joy. But I don't think that's the way that's supposed to be. Joy will come. It's like labor. It's like birth. When you see me, you will rejoice. In the New Testament, you have the, the very first miracle of Jesus. You remember it? John 2, the wedding feast of Cana. What was, what was the first miracle of Jesus? This is the beginning of his public ministry. <clears throat> and when you, when you begin your public ministry, you make sure that, the, that you do the very thing uh, that gives people the essence of what you're about. Okay, so your, your first speech, your first event, when you're starting a campaign, you give them the essence. What did Jesus do when he was trying to get across to people the essence of what he came for? He didn't raise the dead. He didn't walk on water. He didn't heal the sick. He created 150 gallons of incredible wine to move a party to a new level. What's he saying? He's saying, you want to know who I am? I'm the Lord of the feast. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what, what, what about the beginning of the church, the days of Pentecost? Jesus goes to heaven, the Spirit comes down, and the New Testament church is inaugurated. Everybody who saw them that day, everybody who saw the fullness of the Spirit, what did they say about them? These people are drunk. They were so happy, so joyful. They weren't drunk, but they were loopy. That's... Christianity, that's the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of the church, and the beginning of every Christian life. What does the Bible say about how to, how to become a Christian? What does the Bible say about conversion? Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, and he said, he says this, you become followers of the Lord, he's talking about their conversion, you become followers of the Lord, for you received the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. That's what he said. You know what it means to become a Christian? And you might say, well, to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, to believe he died on the cross, to believe he rose from the dead. The Bible says that the demons believe that stuff too. So they're still demons. So the demons know Jesus is the Son of God. The demons know he died on the cross. The demons know he rose from the dead. The difference is they don't receive the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. They have no joy in it. The difference is joy. At the very essence of faith, there has to be joy in the fact the Lord has come. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like a man who discovers a treasure buried in a field. And when he discovers it, he sells all that he has and goes with joy. He sells all that he has and buys that field. Romans fourteen seventeen says, The kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Look at the Gospels. You know what the word gospel means? means euangelion. It literally means the joy news. Jesus Christ was born. What did the angel say? Behold, I bring glad tidings of great joy. Joy is central to our faith. So for those of you who are Christians, I want to ask a quick question. This, this question might sting. It stung me this week. Uh, if this is true, if joy is what it's all about, if it's the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of the church, the beginning of Christianity in your hearts, if it's not just for heaven, but for now, why does joy seem so elusive so often? Is it hard to find for you sometimes? I'm raising my hand. Right? If that's you, how's that possible? 
Remember when Elizabeth was carrying John the Baptist and Mary was carrying Jesus in the womb. Mary gets near Elizabeth and suddenly the child in her womb leapt for joy. Psalm 96 says that when Jesus comes back, the trees of the woods will sing for joy. If the trees and if babies in the womb, if, if anything get, that gets near Jesus leaps for joy, why aren't we? Here's what, I, here's what I have to suggest. When the Bible says rejoice, and again I say rejoice, when it commands your joy, it can't be saying force your feelings. That's impossible, right? You can't, you can't anyway. It's not going to tell you to do something that's impossible. What it must mean is that joy is so inevitable that if it's not flowing through your life, you must be doing something to stop it. And I, and I know there are times of grief, there are seasons of growth in desert times, I get that. But here's the question I think we need to answer. What comparatively small thing am I doing that, that's keeping me from seeing what I have in Jesus? Because whatever it is, it's comparatively small to what we have. What comparatively small thing are you so upset about It's keeping you from seeing what you have in Jesus? That's an important question because it's easy to let comparatively small things steal your joy. We give up our joy very easily. So what is Christian joy? Let's answer that question because I know sometimes it's possible in churches for people to talk about joy as if life is really about, um, you know, just life is being manageable or pleasant. Is there there's some confusion? Is it, is it like happiness? What is it? Here's my definition of Christian joy. Uh, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ. In a way, Christian joy is like every other kind of joy. You rejoice in what you find beautiful. Everybody does. Uh, what, what, what is something you find beautiful? Maybe it's a hobby you have, nature, a relationship that you have. These things can give you joy. Yeah, and that's, and that's great. But it is a joy that doesn't sustain forever. The only thing that can give you sustaining joy is something you find beautiful, not for what it gives you, but for what it is in itself. So why is the woman so happy that this child is born? Because good parents rejoice in the child for what it is in itself. And you're happy if your son or daughter is happy. Why? Because real joy is you don't want that thing to give you something else. You just find it beautiful for what it is in itself. Jesus says it's like the joy of a woman giving, who gives birth. Says he, she's in pain, she's in labor. Then, then it says the child is born, and it says literally in the Greek, she remembers her pain no more. Notice it doesn't say her pain is gone. It says she remembers her pain no more. What does the word remember mean? The, the Bible says when you become a Christian, God remembers your sin no more. Does that mean he's not aware of your sin? No, he's aware of your sin, but the sin doesn't control the way in which he reacts to me. If he doesn't remember my sin anymore because I'm, I'm in Christ, it means he's not controlled by it. He doesn't focus on it. Love is his focus. Here's what's going on. He's, here's this woman, and she's in pain of labor, and then she has the baby, and she has all this love and joy for the child, and she forgets her pain. It doesn't, doesn't mean she denies it doesn't mean that she's not hurting. It just doesn't control her. The pain can't get her down anymore. 
not when she has this. Christian joy is that you've located your greatest joy and your greatest beauty in God, and you find him more and more beautiful than anything else in life. The difference between a religious person and a Christian is not one, not one is obedient and one is disobedient. The difference is the relig- religious person finds God useful. The Christian finds God beautiful. All right, what does that mean? It means that the religious person will obey as long as God answers his prayers. But if God doesn't answer his prayers, they say, what good is it to be a Christian? God is a means to an end. God is useful. He isn't beautiful to the religious. The religious have only the joy from things going their way. It's very different than Christian joy. Because Christian joy coexists with suffering. Christian joy coexists with sorrow. She remembers her sorrow no more. It doesn't mean she isn't aware of it. It means she doesn't, it doesn't control her anymore. Worldly joy has to deny suffering. But Christian joy coexists and, in fact, is enhanced by it because it shows you where true joy is found. Christian joy is you've relocated your joy in God and now circumstances can't touch it. This is, by the way, the reason why Christians should never be denying their own pain. We like to pretend everything's fine most of the time. Right? How are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. Fine. Okay. Everybody's fine. But Christians should never deny that the world's a painful place. And I'm not saying to unload your problems on the first person that says hi, but Christians should never be afraid to get empathetically involved with people who are suffering. Why? Because you have a joy that coexists with sorrow. We have a joy that grows deeper with sorrow. Just like the darker the night, the brighter the stars, Christian joy is like that. It gets brighter when everything gets darker. Everybody else's joy goes out. Maybe you're saying, okay, that's cool. This, this incredible joy, you rejoice even in suffering and everything. Uh, but I can't do that. And I read these texts, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. I try to be happy, but I can't do it. Like, can I tell you? It's really not a matter of trying. When Jesus Christ tells us about this woman, it says she's in all this pain, and then it says, why? Why is she in all this pain? What does it say? Because her time has come. Literally, the Greek says, because her hour has come. The word hour has a very specific meaning in the Bible. Remember when Mary says they have no more wine, Jesus turns and says, woman, it's not my hour. What is the hour? It's the fullness of time. Jesus is comparing his death to this woman giving birth. And the only way for a mother to give the baby the joy of life is to take away her own joy for that moment. Jesus Christ says, I gave away a joy to bring joy to you. And the joy I lost and the pain I suffered was my hour. He gave up his joy so that we can have it. Why? Go back and read Proverbs 8 sometime. He says, when my father and I were creating the universe, I danced before the father and we delighted in the human race, the men and women we were creating to take part in our joy. But because of sin, I lost that. And in Hebrews 12, it says, For the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross, despising its shame. For the joy that was set before him. What joy was that? What did Jesus get out of it? 
What did Jesus get out of this incredible experience of agony and torment he went through on the cross? Did he get out of it some sort of sense of accomplishment? He didn't need that. He had that. Did he get out of it the admiration of the Father? No, he already had that. Did he get out of it some sort of self-esteem? He already had that. What what didn't he have? It was us. He got us back. What's that mean? We were the joy set before him. He locates his joy in us. He wanted us just because we were beautiful to him. It tells us in Isaiah 53, says 11, he says, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. He'll look at us and say, it was worth it. How could that be worth it? The only way it would be worth it would be if he has located his joy in us. He has linked his heart to us. He has made us his treasure. He has made us his beauty. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will sing, but will rejoice over you with singing. We are his treasure. You are God's beloved child. That's who you are. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of you. It doesn't matter how well you think you're doing. It doesn't matter. That's who you are. When you start living with that knowledge always present in your heart and in your mind, you become a different kind of person. It's so interesting. In Mark 1, Jesus had been told by this voice from heaven, His Father, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In the very next few verses, He's taken out into the wilderness, and the evil one says to Him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. This is how the enemy works. He's going to try to tell you, you don't, don't trust the voice. Don't listen to the Father. You have to prove it. You have to earn it. You have to make it happen. You have to make it all about you. The temptation is to question who you are in Christ. But your identity is that you are God's treasure. That's how you can have joy in Jesus. If you see that Jesus made you his joy, that will change you. If you see him locating his joy in you and being the, the beauty of his life, that means you'll be able to put your joy in him. He'll become the joy. Your senses are made for a certain response, right? Your eyes are kind of made for certain kinds of visual beauty. Your ears are made for a certain kind of auditory beauty, but your soul is made for this beauty. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, Those of you who are passing out communion, you can go ahead and start doing that. Thank you. Let me end this way and then we'll, we'll take communion together. So here's my encouragement for you this Christmas season. Really try to take in what we have in Jesus this season. Focus on 
what he has done for you. See that you are his beauty. And let that push you to see him as your beauty. And then, bring joy with you wherever you go. Because if you're a Christian, joy is central to who you are. Thanks, Tony. Jesus said on the night before he died, I have told you these things so that my... They, that my joy may be in you. When you serve, bring joy. When you work, bring joy. If you show up and things don't go right, bring joy. When you're at Christmas shopping and everyone's stressed out, bring joy. When you're with those family members that drive you a bit crazy, bring joy. If people get cranky, bring joy. That's my encouragement to you. Let's, let's pray. You can just go ahead and keep passing out the communion. Father, we pray that now as we take the Lord's Supper, uh, your Son, Jesus Christ, would become real to us. Help us to see that the, the broken body was for us. The cup poured out. Is his heart poured out for us? Help us to see him finding his joy in us doing all this for us, just because of his love for us, his delight. Give us that delight in him that will give us that joy that will help us to move out into the world and change the world. Because the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So let's take... If you have your communion, let's go ahead and take communion together. Lord, help us to see your beauty. Help us to see our identity in you, that we are your beloved children and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that you call us a masterpiece. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you would like prayer, uh, our ministry team will be up front here. If you'd like prayer for anything, feel free to come up. If not, you're free to go. Amen. Have a great day.